Well, we are covering that very thought-provoking subject of predestination and election and been chosen before the foundation of the world. I hope you've thought about that the past two weeks uh, since we talked about it last. Um, I know I have. <laughs> As many of you have had questions and um, comments and agreements and disagreements, uh, I'm thankful, though, that this is something we are willing to talk about and not just try to you know, throw away as one of those subjects that no one can ever figure out, so why bother? Uh, and, and in fact, the, the main concern I, I have is that some would take as a, you know, logical, I'm going to put that in air quotes, logical conclusion of the fact that all things are predestined, uh, which we made a pretty good biblical case for in, um, in our study two weeks ago, um, that some would say, that, well, the logical conclusion of that is then to be fatalistic, Meaning, you just submit. I mean, you just submit to the fact that things are going to be the way they are. You can't change them. And you just have this attitude, oftentimes a very cynical one, that you can't do anything about anything, so why bother trying to, to do anything in this life? It's all meaningless. Uh, and in fact, there are plenty of religions and plenty of philosophies that assume that Everything that happens is inevitable, including many forms of atheism. I thought it was interesting a few years ago that an atheist wrote a book essentially saying that um, everything has been determined from the Big Bang, you know, cause and effect, cause and effect. Every atom hitting another atom was, was going to happen that way. Thus, the implication is everything that's happening to you and me, including the things in our mind, that's all inevitable, uh, including him writing a book trying to persuade people that this is how the world is. Now, <laughs> I, I think that's just a, kind of a funny, uh, a funny kind of implication is that uh, because everything is the way it's supposed to be, I ended up writing a book and trying to make a book deal and make money and go on tours telling you that you have no control over who you are and, and what you're becoming. Well, most of these religions, including atheism and worldviews, amount to just dealing with that harsh reality that you can't change anything. So, you know, Buddhists have one kind of idea about that, and other religions have another kind of idea. What makes Christianity different if, in fact, we do believe that things are predestined to be a certain way? Because we do think from the Word of God and from the very nature of God that you cannot fight God's will and purpose, or else you wouldn't be God. But I want to think about this in a different, in a different way. I, I know, I, I really don't think that you can realistically go through the Bible and not come away with the idea that God is just absolutely sovereign. He, he started the whole thing. He's going to end the whole thing. He says that everything, even about us and his choosing us, is before the foundation of the world. Uh, I do think that if you wanted to, you could become kind of fatalistic. And I actually have met many Christians who say, well, I must not be chosen, and so that means this, this, and this, and I can't ever do this, and they get hopeless and desperate. But is that the way that the Bible talks about his sovereignty, his predestination? You need to think about the context of this letter. Paul was as much a philosopher and a theologian as, as anyone, as brilliant a mind as anyone alive today who has ever lived. But at his heart, he's a Christian, and he's a pastor. He is trying to encourage the Ephesians to be faithful 
and to live holy lives. He's not trying to give lectures about predestination. You don't read the book of Ephesians. You don't even read these three verses that were read earlier today and think, ah, here is a lecture trying to uh, discern and divide how you know, free will and God's sovereignty coexist. It's not like that at all. He isn't trying to persuade us about whether we should be supralapsarian or infralapsarian. And if you've never heard those words before, bless you, because those are things you learn in seminary to try and think about the mind of God before he ever created anything. And is it a worthwhile debate? I suppose so. But that's not what Paul is trying to get at. He's not trying to teach a seminary class, and that's not to diminish seminary at all. But he is trying at a basic level to motivate us, to give us a reason to live, to produce in us thankfulness to God, and ultimately give us every reason that we can put our full hope and trust in him. So if you have a hard time grasping predestination, join the club, but also focus on these four insights about predestination that ought to encourage our faith. Firstly, that the motive of our predestination is love. Secondly, that the goal of our predestination is family. Thirdly, that the plan for our predestination is good. And fourthly, that the purpose of predestination is praise. I'll repeat those as we go through them. Let me read again for you the chapter and the verses that we'll be looking at specifically. Looking at the end of verse 4 of Ephesians chapter 1. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Maybe predestination is a difficult subject for you to wrap your mind around, but know this first of all that the motive for predestination is love. It's not some fancy philosophical idea. It's not, you know, how, what's the logic that underpins the, the universe? The motivation of God to predestine us for all of those things that we just talked about, as heady as they are, is at its root, love. I know it's tempting to define love as a decision that we make or a feeling, but um, I, I think we are not done a service by uh, the shows that are on our TVs and the music we listen to on the radio, that love is there primarily a fleeting emotion or feeling. Maybe if you're lucky, you get a sense of commitment, but Nowadays, the idea of love seems to be a self-serving commitment, that I will love you so long as, and then whatever condition exists after that. And our, our divorce rates and our lack of marriage in general tells us that that is apparently the case, even so many uh, of the issues regarding abortion is, has to do with this, this child was not conceived out of love and so certainly doesn't want... You know, the, the, the family, the parents don't want to keep a child that's not born out of love. And so it's a lack of love, almost at, a, at the heart of it. 
And yet our God is a God of love. How does he define love? Doesn't that matter the most? Because you can find a a million contradictory definitions of love. But if it's not the love that God describes, then what is it really except our own selfishness projected? 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. Now, 1 John 4 has a lot to say about love, and I'd encourage you to read uh, really the whole book of 1 John. But if you wanted to know more about love, 1 John 4 is a great place to be. In 1 John 4.10, 1 John 4.10, the Apostle John writes, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. 1 John 4.10 makes it clear that when we think of love, we need to think of God's love first. We love because he loved us. It's not that we loved him first. I know, again, we talked about how some, some would try to make a predestination where God looks down the hallways of time and to see who would choose him, and then he's going to choose them before and all that kind of stuff. But that's completely undermined by the simple fact that we did not love God. We did not love God first. We did not love God at all. God had to choose to love us, even from the foundation of the world. How does God define love? Well, it says right there that he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Another way to put that is, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. In other words, God is saying, here is the definition of love. It's my sacrifice for you, not what you can do for me. God gave up what is most precious. What is most precious in heaven? I love other mythologies, and I love all these, like, Marvel shows that there's always some kind of, there's stones and rings and all kinds of silly stuff that's, like, the most precious thing, that's the most important thing, the thing that even gods seek after, some thing. Well, how ludicrous is that? A thing is more important to God than God himself? No, the most precious thing in heaven is God. How could there be any more magnificent and glorious thing than God himself. And so what did God give in order to love us? The most precious thing, his own beloved son. God himself gave himself. What else could he give if you wanted to show the greatest love of all? It's an incredible thought. And not just that he gave Jesus to us, that God gave of himself to us, but he gave himself in the most humbling and humiliating way. It says that he would be the propitiation for our sins. In other words, that we are not just those who do not love God, but we have incurred a debt to God. That by our rebellion, our, our opposition to him, there should be a judgment, a penalty against us. And God in his love said, I will pay that by giving the most precious thing in heaven, my own son. So propitiation means it's a payment for sins. This is a sacrificial love, and this is not just a sacrificial love, it's a sacrificing love. There's an attitude of love in this. It's not just God loved us one time. In other words, as you know, marriage is not just about saying one time I love you, that on the altar you said one time I commit to you, but marriage is exactly the proposition that every day 
I'm going to love you. And in the same way, God has that same kind of love for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, this passage known by even uh, many non-churchgoers, 1 Corinthians 13 verse 4 says, and on to 7, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not reject or rejoice at wrongdoings, but rejoices with the truth. Love believes all, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. So many passages in the Bible speak of love, and whenever it does, it speaks of God because God is love. Love is, covers a multitude of sins. Greater love has no man than this, and to lay down his life for his friend. So many passages, and, and God exemplifies that kind of love. God is love. And when we apply this to the doctrine of predestination, it means that everything that God predestines for us flows from this love and is constrained by this love. When you, you can think of it this way. When, when God predestines, there's no ulterior motive. He didn't choose you and he didn't choose me because we were better than other people. That would make his choice based on our loveliness, our lovability. God made this choice in love for himself, a decision based on the fact that he wanted to show a pure love to us, not constrained by me and even my sin. Again, you could try to think all of this very, you know, philosophically. I mean, did God, this is kind of like the infralapsarian, superlapsarian thing. Did God come up with the idea of me first? You know, before I was created, he thought of creating someone like Yuri, and then he decided to love me after he thought of me? Or did he decide to love something called humans and then decide to create me as a deliberate object of love? I mean, does that make your head hurt? Or did you even understand what I just said? I don't know. <laughs> I was thinking about that, you know, and that, that you know, that's a debate, really, in a way, in, in Christian circles. I'm not going to figure, how am, I gonna, how am I supposed to think about when I wasn't created and what God thought of me before I was even created? I'm just thankful <laughs> to be loved by God. That's it. <laughs> That's all Paul is trying to say. He's not trying to get you to think about, well, did he, did he love me after he made me, not knowing who I would be? Or did he intentionally create me the way I am with my, my sins and failings and love me anyway? Or did he, you know, is he loving so he created, you know, fallible, sinful people to show us options? I mean, that's, that's really a, a debate. I don't know. <laughs> I'm just thankful somebody loves me. That's nice. I mean, I, I, I mean, how could I possibly answer that in, in any realistic way except to know and believe that God has an absolutely radical idea of love that just completely exceeds our puny minds. And to think that the motivation for predestination and all these things, people get so hung up on it. But as a Christian, you can say, well, it was in love. I don't know much about it, but I know that it costs God something, 
and he wanted to do it for me even though I didn't deserve it. And here's the thing, like 1 John 4, 11 said, that love that God showed us said, beloved, let us love one another. We need to love others in that same way. Now, that should really um, stop you, arrest you in your seat. Hold on, hold on. You, you know, you're saying that God loved me even before the foundation of the world. In love, he predestined. How, I can't really even grasp that. How am I supposed to love someone else in that same kind of unfathomable, sort of incredible way? I mean, God loved us before the foundation of the world. I can't exactly mimic that. I mean, maybe the way that you might love a child that's still in the womb or love the idea of having a child if you're not pregnant, that sort of gets close. But God isn't trying to think theoretically. He is literally saying through John, 1 John 4, 10 and 11, that the same absolutely infathomable before time began way that God loved you, you need to love your neighbor. You need to love even your enemies somehow in that way. That, what it should do, okay, because I, I know you're, you know, you and I get, or well, maybe just me, but I get hung up. How do I love even my enemies? I mean, I obviously don't need to make myself a victim. Uh, how do I love, like, you know, <sighs> you know, family members that, that really, you know, they're, they're, they're part of, you know, a religion that's not very compatible with mine. And we can think very hard, long and hard about how do I love people in that kind of incredible way. Well, I, I think one thing that we need to do first when we hear, you know, God has uh, sent his son to be the propitiation for your sins in love. And you need to love other people that way. I think actually a good first reaction is I am really selfish. I don't really think about loving other people in, in general because I spend a lot of time thinking about loving me. That if I'm supposed to love other people in that kind of radical way, the fact that I, I don't even think that way about it just says something about me. I, I mean, if you want to start out on a good you know, thought process here about loving others, I, I think a good place to start is just saying, man, I am really, really selfish. I mean, I, I say I love my wife and my kids. I say I love you guys, but how do I really show that? How, how do I really demonstrate that? When it really comes down to it, and I am stressed and I am pressed, and, you know, we're going on a road trip soon, and in, in mile, you know, 30, or I mean, hour 30, you know, of a 40-hour drive, and I'm stressed and tired, and I just have Red Bull coursing through my veins. Um, <laughs> like, what am I going to choose to do in that moment? It's easy to love when I'm comfortable and hydrated and things are kind of going my way, but when you are stressed and pressed, what kind of love are you going to show then? In love, he predestined us. In love each other with that kind of love. This is what predestination is supposed to make you think about. Not, oh, you know how easy it is for, you know, Christian theologians just to sit there in a room and talk about and argue about things that are not going to make anyone one iota more holy or loving? 
oh, let's talk about whether you know, it's infralapsarian or supralapsarian and write a whole big paper. But Paul was not trying to convince you of something like that, like, like a PhD uh, dissertation. He is trying to move our hearts. He's trying to get you to think about things. He wants you to think about the fact that before anything was made, he loved. Chew on that for a while. Let that transform you. Think about yourself. Think about your love. Think about how you love other people in light of that. That's where God wants you to go, not sit there and ignore your own soul because you're going to have this heady debate about the will of God before the foundation of the world. Secondly, the goal for our predestination is family. Note, Again, going back to Ephesians chapter 1, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons and daughters, that includes daughters too, through Jesus Christ. Nothing says love more than saying you're part of the family. Naturally, of course, we share blood with those whom we call brothers and sisters and father, mother, aunts, and uncles. The thing is, you didn't have a lot of choice about your relatives. So saying, you're, you're like family to me, doesn't mean a whole lot when you didn't have a choice about that. You know, you're united by blood. God's love <clears throat> is demonstrated in predestining us to be a part of his family, to be adopted as sons and daughters through, by, the natural son, Jesus shedding his literal blood in order to bring us into the family of God. And again, this is a tremendous thought that before time began, and again, the greatest treasure in heaven is God himself. It just has to be. It's the very definition of heaven. If you think of heaven primarily as like clouds or, or chubby little baby angels or streets of gold or all those things, no, the, the most defining feature of heaven is it's the place where God dwells. The most important thing about heaven is God. And for, before the foundation of the world, for God to say that by the sacrifice of God, I will bring others who are not God into the family of God is one of the most uh, staggering thoughts you should ever have in your life. Not, not exaggerating that at all. We're talking about God. This is, this is more significant than some king of some large land taking and, and pulling out some, uh, some pauper's child and saying, I adopt you into my family. You're going to inherit this kingdom of 10 million horses and you know, millions of acres of fields and all, that, all the treasuries in our storehouses. If you think that is would be a tremendous and staggering and humbling thing. We're talking about God, the very one who created all things. God, beyond our imagination and thoughts. God, the one who was there at the beginning, like we said, with the kids. And for him to say to us, we are not gods, to say to us, I want them to be adopted into my family, even if it takes me, God, making a sacrifice for it to happen. I, I mean, it is hard for us to make a sacrifice to others when it really counts. I mean, I, I mean, yeah, you, you'll make a sacrifice when it doesn't cost you a whole, whole lot. But, you know, 
When's the last time you, you made a sacrifice that really cost you, almost cost you everything for someone else? I, I don't think I have, not, not really. I mean, marriage, I suppose, comes close to that. But for God to have to ever sacrifice anything doesn't make sense. He's God. He shouldn't have to ever give up anything. He, he can't in a way because he made everything except God. Except God. God is the only thing God has not ever made. So for him to sacrifice that on our behalf to make us his family, that really ought to be one of the most humbling thoughts in your mind as a Christian. How could it not be? Unless you have a very low view of God, that he's just like your rich uncle. Or unless you have a really high view of yourself, like you are just inches away from deity yourself. No. If you have any inkling of who God is and who you are before holy God, to hear him say, you are part of my family now with all the rights and privileges thereof, that should absolutely stagger and humble us. We need to be struck by this kind of imagery God is using. Have you ever thought about adopting I have friends who have adopted. We've, we've talked about it, Catherine and I myself, thought about adopting, and perhaps the opportunity may come up. I don't know. But I, I suppose when you choose, I, that seems like a weird idea to choose the kind of child that you would like to have, that you would have preferences about that. You know, I'll, you know younger kid, older kid. Um, maybe you want a certain race for your kid. Maybe you prefer a child that doesn't have a whole lot of health problems. I mean, like a really healthy child. I'm just, th those sound like very hard and challenging choices to make when you're adopting. I mean, what, what kind of paradigm do you use? And I'm not saying that to discourage adoption, but understand that God, when he chose us to be adopted into his family, he didn't choose those who are very close to divinity themselves. Very good, only the best for God's family. We talked about it last time. According to 1 Corinthians 1.26, we won't go there, but 1 Corinthians 1.26-31, it says explicitly that God intentionally chose those who are weak, lowly, and despised for his glory, for his family. Romans chapter 8, 15 through 17, we've spent a lot of time in Romans 8, we read it this morning, and it's because it, it talks about predestination, it talks about all of these themes, Romans chapter 8, verses 15 through 17, Romans 8, 15, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, Daddy, Dada. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ? How can it be? Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The end of the chapter also was read talking about how those he predestined he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. The family imagery is very strong. And just like uh, earthly adoption, when you choose another child and you say, you are part of my family now, 
with no distinction between the natural born and those who have been adopted, so is God to us that he sees no distinction, you could say, in a way, I, I mean, in some impossible way, that he would treat us as Jesus Christ, the Son of God, second person of the Trinity, as God himself. These things ought to humble us and stagger us. Not only that, but being adopted by God, it's this hope and this truth that we belong somewhere. It's the ultimate statement of us being welcome to God's house. I know we covered it again when we are in Revelation, but let me reiterate that predestination is intended to give us that hope and assurance that we have a place at God's table. Maybe everyone in this whole world rejects you. Maybe a mother even wants to reject a child, even from the womb. But God's children are his forever. Loved, chosen, cherished, no matter what. This should be a comfort. Especially, as we'll see it in more in Ephesians 2, but Ephesians addresses this divide between the Jewish people and the Jewish Christians and the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people who became Christians. Imagine the awkwardness of Jewish people who'd grown up believing that Gentiles needed to be treated sort of at arm's length at best, and at worst, to be seen as an enemy who was oppressing them as a people and a nation. Imagine being a Gentile. You're claiming now to follow a Jewish man as your Messiah with your whole life. You're completely a fish out of water, not knowing if you really do belong to a covenant that was made to Abraham and Isaac and, and Jacob. Election and adoption, predestination, it means that God's plan from the beginning was to bring Jews and non-Jews together into one family because we are all one sinful race. We'll get into that more in chapter 2, but this was also intended to bring comfort to those who might think, does God really accept me? Can God really accept me? Well, how do we apply that? Being adopted as, as sons and daughters of God. Well, we read in Romans chapter 8 just a moment ago that one way we show that is by going to God as our father, <laughs> believing that he is like a good dad who cares about his children, who has loved us, knowing that we were going to screw it up just the way that we, we should love our kids unconditionally. That is who God the Father is to us. He sent his own son to die to make that a reality. Can you question it? If God gave up even Jesus Christ, can you question that he would love you? Another way to apply that is, of course, that our church should be a place where all who place faith in Jesus are treated as family regardless of background and age and race and economic status and politics, what car you drive, the church should be a place that reflects that we are all the family of God. Might look different, might come from different backgrounds and all those sorts of things, but we are acknowledging that if you've placed faith in Jesus, you are a part of the family. We ought to treat each other that way. There should be no room for an unwelcoming attitude. There should be no room for division. There should be no room for uh, 
partiality and, and judgment based on factors that are not biblical factors of judgment. The church and every Sunday morning should be a celebration of our adoption into the family of God. Thirdly, in Ephesians, we see that the uh, plan for our predestination is good. He says, according here uh, to the purpose of his will, that we have been predestined for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Of course, this is an assurance that everything that is happening is according to God's plan. And it's not an awful plan. It's not a, a plan to destroy God's plan already, we know, is motivated by love and has the goal of bringing us into the family. Okay, so that's the motivation, that's the end point. And everything that happens in between that process of us being a part of his family and ultimately into our heavenly home for eternity, everything along the way according to his, is according to the purpose of his will is a good plan. Everything that happens in our lives from beginning to end has been purposed and planned by God for our good. We read it again this morning in Romans chapter 8, and some of you have had this memorized, but Romans 8, 28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Both the Bible's example and our own experience is that good doesn't necessarily mean comfortable or pain-free. Sometimes the hardest things are the most good things. Of course, the premier example is the cross. The cross was unfathomably hard, painful, shameful. The, the, the greatest display of the horror of our sin and the judgment of God against sin. And yet something good came out of it. Now, most of us here, I hope all of us here, will likely never experience being crucified on a cross. But we will at some point go through pain and suffering I thought, I've thought a lot about how God has um, made me who I am and uh, how, how that affects how I think other people should grow in their faith. Because I think about how I grew in my faith, and there was a time and a season in my life where I thought in terms of ministry, well, the things that, that spoke to me, the things that helped me grow in my ministry, if I do just a carbon copy of that, then other people will obviously be blessed and, and grow. And that can work, and sometimes it does. But I, I realize I don't know if I can, I don't know if I want to be the judge of that. And this is what I was thinking of. I think I've told you guys this story, so, but you can't stop me if you've heard it before, so I'm going to tell it again. Um, but I, I remember as a child, I think I was around Anna's age, like 9, 10, 11, that, that age range. I, I went to the dentist a lot. I just had really bad teeth. Um, came from my mom's side. And so I, I'd go to the dentist a lot, and they didn't take particularly good care of my teeth. And I don't know if it was that they just didn't have Novocaine, or every time they, they did it, they just did not do the right spot. But I, I, there was at least three or four times where I remember getting a filling, and there was no painkiller there. Um, 
and I, I can, I mean, I can still feel the, the, the feeling of that nerve being exposed and like a drill, just like drilling against it, the smell, you know, the taste of it. I, I can still remember that. Um, the, mo- the thing I remember the most is that my mom would be sitting there and I would just be holding her hand, you know, just absolutely crushing it because of the pain and, and tears like squeezing out of my eye. But I didn't want to yell out because, you know, the dentist needs to do his work. I wanted to be tough and I wanted to, you know, in, endure it. So I didn't even just like cry. It just like, you know, tears would squeak out of the side of my eye. I just remember that very vividly. Now, I don't really have any negative feelings about that now. I, I don't. I, I feel like it made me tougher. You know, I got a higher threshold of pain. You know, it built character. I don't know. I don't think it was intentional by my mom to put me through that. Um, maybe I should have said something like, yeah, I, I can totally feel that, that Novocaine is not hitting, or maybe I'd like Novocaine. I don't know if we couldn't afford Novocaine. I don't know what the deal was. But I didn't say anything about it. I just remember going through that intense pain. But now I would look back and say, that's a part of who I am. I wouldn't necessarily not do it that way. Uh, I feel like it built something in me of an understanding of uh, I needed those feelings. I needed to have my teeth taken care of. So it was a necessary pain. Now, my children do not know this pain. Okay, when they first started to go, have to go to the dentist, they get precisely placed shots while under a mild anesthetic that they inhale through strawberry-scented masks while watching a cartoon on the ceiling <laughs> as they're laid back. Now, part of me says, my children are going to grow up to be wimps. They're, you know, if I don't allow some pain into their life. But, of course, part of me wants my children to never be hurt or in pain ever. Right? I want to do what's best for them, what's good and right. But the thought of, like, bringing them through pain, it's a hard one to fathom. I don't know, maybe you have kids, maybe you don't have kids, maybe ex- I hope you've experienced something similar. It's like, you know, if I had to do that again, I, I don't know if I would choose to go through that again, but I did grow from it. But, I mean, it, it changed my perspective. The, the pain was good and was necessary. You could, this is something even, you know, anyone, any religion, any worldview, they can tell you that there are times when pain produces something sweet and beautiful. But who wants to be the one that decides that? Who wants to be the one that says, okay, you know, now, like, take that to to church here. Like, you know, should I design and order some pain for your life that I know God will use to grow your faith? Who am I to do that, right? I mean, that that would be awfully presumptuous of me to start... um, bringing pain into your life intentionally. I know I bring pain into your life unintentionally. (laughs) Trust me, I know. But intentionally, I mean, I would not ever order that. One of the things that is supposed to be one of the greatest hopes and comforts in your life is that God does know that because of predestination, Nothing is happening to you that God doesn't purpose out of love for you as his beloved child. Yes, even to allow pain and suffering and trial and temptation to come, but never out of his anger. 
or his capriciousness, or to see a squirm because he's a, a sadist, never to drive us away or to harm us eternally. God, in predestining all things to work together for good, is that exactly that hope and trust that whatever trial and dark time that you are going through, it is intended to bring you close to him, to make you know what is truly important and meaningful in this life. Sometimes, yes, it's really hard, awful things. But I guarantee you that there are believers who have gone through the most heinous acts of evil, murder, rape, betrayal, abandonment, crippling handicaps, disease, tragedy, war. There are believers who have gone through, experienced these things in their life, so much worse than feelings without anesthetic. And yet they can proclaim and testify to you God's good purpose in it. Maybe it was hard to see at the time. But they believed and hoped in a good God, entrusting their souls to a good Savior. And if you want to know some of those stories, this is application. If you want to know some of those stories about God's good will and purpose, there are many of those stories even in this room. There are testimonies here. I mean, can we really say, I mean, who here has the testimony that your life was super comfortable and then you became a Christian and it was super comfortable and you died super comfortably? I guess you can't give that testimony. But you know, like, who, who has that testimony? None of you here have that testimony. All of us here have gone through things and are going through things. And so we have a chance Sundays and anytime you come to a Bible study or, you know, get together at the church to not just chat about, you know, sports and the weather and, and, and vacations even, but to talk about those testimonies of how God has really shown you his goodness even through the trials and the hardships. If you're having a hard time seeing the good and you're not super social, well, I still would encourage you to, you know, talk to other people here but of course, there are so many Christian biographies and testimonies that have been written down and passed on through the centuries and millennia of how Christians have suffered for Christ and said, he's been good the whole way. Many of the testimonies of the songs, the classic hymns of our faith are born out of that kind of trial and suffering. Another application, I know this seems silly, but thankfulness is a great antidote to questioning God's goodness. Things could always be worse. Really, it could. I mean, that, that's such a cliche. But when you start thinking about how things are in, in many parts of the world, things could always be worse. And that's why we should be thankful for any good thing in our life because it is an evidence of God's good purpose. You have many things to be thinking. If you are here right now in this room, you have many things to be thankful for already. I know, just by the fact that you're here in this room. It means a lot of things if you're here in this room right now. It, I already know, you have many things to be thankful for. Be thankful. That's how we reflect that God has a good good plan and purpose. Fourth, and this is last and the shortest because this is kind of the theme of, of this passage of Ephesians. The purpose of predestination is praise. 
to the praise of his glorious grace. Remember, we talked about that that, that, that phrase comes out again and again in, in, in the first chapter of Ephesians. That's merely to say that everything that is happening ultimately is about him. And in the context here, when it talks about to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved, the blessed us, the blessing is election and predestination. That is what Paul is talking about primarily as the blessing. And so we ought to give praise for the fact. Maybe we can't fully wrap our mind around it. But if he has loved us, brought us into his family and says that he has a good purpose and will for our life. Isn't that a lot of reason to praise? And I just want to point out, he, it says that he has blessed us in the beloved. Of course, that refers to Jesus, but it's not a, a term that's used very often, actually, to describe Jesus. It's often um, used by God the Father in the Gospels to talk about his own son. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, for example. And it, it, it emphasizes the, the word or the title, beloved. It emphasizes that God the Father loves the son. He loves the son in a particular and special way. He is God. And again, in the mystery of the Trinity, that God the Father has to love God the Son. The source of love is God. God is love whether there's a creation or not. How could that be so? Because there is a community and a unity within the Trinity. The Father loves the Son. And so he is beloved in his, in, in his eyes. But why does Paul use this title when it's usually God the Father who uses it, uses it. Well, this is my take. I mean, we can talk about this if, if you have another perspective. But Paul brings up this idea now to uh, draw our attention to the fact that as much as God has loved the Son, He has blessed us through the Beloved so that we can also be His Beloved. Right? In love, he protested. He adopted us into his family. He's purposing all these things through the beloved, his own precious son. But what he wants to do is through the beloved son, make many more beloved sons and daughters. We should worship Jesus, praise his glorious grace, his mercy, his unmerited favor. We didn't earn any of this. God determined it beforehand. We worship Jesus. We worship the Father. We praise and glorify. And amazingly, God, in turn, glorifies us. We saw that at the end of Romans 8, verse 30, that those he predestined, ultimately, he glorifies. It's an incredible thought. It's an incredible thought. The idea that things are predetermined in some divine and mysterious way, yes, it can get very abstract. It can make your head hurt thinking about a time before there's time and all that stuff. And I think when you start getting wrapped around in those thoughts, it's beneficial to focus on God's motivation for predestination, which is love, on God's goal in predestination, which is to be adopted into his family, on God's plan of predestination being for our good and ultimately God's purpose in predestination, which is praise and glory to God the Father who also glorifies us. Predestination of all things, 
should not equate to fatalism or spiritual laziness or hopelessness. God, in this mystery, again, of, you know, I don't know, call it free will or, or, or whatever, but God, in the mystery of his sovereign plan, also has determined for us to grow in our thinking, to change in our heart by pondering what it means to be predestined. And while we might not be able to understand the, the logistics of how predestination and responsibility for our sin reconcile, I do hope that looking at Paul's heart for bringing up this doctrine as being an encouragement to our souls and our faith might give us some comfort and some motivation to go out and live as Christians today. And I, I, I hope and pray that for those of you who may not profess a faith in Christ, that, that these words God would sovereignly use in your heart to demonstrate to you that if there is a meaning and purpose to this life, which there has to be, it must be wrapped in God. And the Bible says that this God loved us before the foundation of the world and sent his son. He is worthy of our trust and our hope. No other religion is saying anything close to this. No other worldview is saying anything that captures what we know intuitively about love is a real thing, about family, about being in the very God had somehow, some way that aren't we being called to God in some way? Yes, but only through him. And so I encourage you, if you are not a Christian and you have questions about this, come talk to me or, or I'm going on vacation. So talk to Pastor Chris or talk to <laughs> Bing or talk to someone here that looks like they know, they have a hope in them. They would love to tell you more about it. But consider that your life, apart from this meaning and purpose, will be apart from God for eternity, which is the judgment of hell and suffering for the actions, all of your sins in this life. So please, I beg of you to turn from your sin and put your faith in the one who died for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for, again, the reminders, I hope, of who you are and what you've done. There's no greater thought we're gonna have today or any day than and about you, and even when we forget, I thank you for the reminders. I need the reminder. Uh, I pray, Lord, that our hearts would be encouraged, that predestination wouldn't be something we shy away from, but rather we see all the implications and applications of, and that we'd want to talk about these things and grow in these things, and at the same time, not just talk, but, but do and live according to what we have understood. Thank you, Lord, for each one here. I know that it's your divine purpose and plan that has brought them. I'm thankful for each one. I pray that you'd bless the rest of our day today to the praise of your glorious grace. In Jesus and through Jesus, we pray. Amen.